I need you to just be with me for the first little bit here because I do need to do some, um, some academic instruction, but I think that you'll find that it's important. I think most of us know that there are four Gospels in the New Testament. We call them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell the story of Jesus. As a result, since they tell the same story, three of them are quite similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, those three are called the synoptic Gospels um, because the, the word synoptic means seen together that is, they look the same. Now, the fourth gospel, John, um, is quite different. Ninety percent uh, of John is not found in the other gospels because John was written last, and he includes some of the stories that the others left out. But here's the question. Why do we have four gospel narratives? Well, because Eastern writers of history, like biographies, wrote with specific purposes in mind. They weren't just writing history for history's sake. They wrote with specific purposes, for example, to communicate uh, a specific truth. And, and as a result, they were not concerned about getting all of the events in proper order like, like we are all concerned about, or, you know, we want to get names and dates and get all of that. Right? That wasn't a concern to them, nor was it important that they share all of the details um, of an event. So as you read these rather similar stories, depending on their respective purposes, they contain different details. Now, why do I share that? Because today we are going to look at a familiar story found uh, in, in Matthew, Mark, and, and John. Luke is the one who actually leaves it out. And it's the story of Jesus walking on the water. And there are lots of similarities between the three accounts and some differences. But do those differences mean irreconcilable contradictions? Uh, of course not. What we have are different authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing the same story from different vantage points with slightly different purposes in mind. And yet when we put it all together, as I will seek to do a little bit this morning, we get a full picture of what happened. So... We are studying the Gospel of Mark, and we, we've already studied Matthew and John some years ago, which means that we've already looked at this story in their particular accounts, which means we saw um, why they included them in their narratives. Now, at the risk of sounding terribly redundant, what was Mark's purpose in writing his book? To share the, the Gospel uh, of Jesus, who is the Christ the Son of God. He has been seeking to prove that. He is the Christ, the Son of God. So, so that's his primary purpose. But we've also found that he is developing a, a secondary theme, uh, which I've called the dullness of the disciples. The disciples were very slow. In, in the midst of all that Jesus says, in the midst of all that Jesus does, they seem to have a hard time figuring it all out. And this is going to become abundantly clear today. So, so let's read the text. Let's read the story in Mark's account, chapter 6, verses 45 and following say this. Immediately, immediately after the events of last week, the feeding of the 5,000, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and 
go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. And after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea. How'd they get there? And he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. For, For they all saw him and were terrified, but... Immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. But their heart was hardened. Now, immediately, some of you may be thinking, No, wait a minute, I think I know this story. Isn't this the one where Peter walks on the water? Yes, it is, and and Matthew records that part of the story. Mark leaves it out for at least, I think, a couple of of reasons. First, it didn't particularly fit his purpose in demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And, And second, remember who Mark got his stories from. He got his story from his mentor, Peter. And the story of Peter walking on the water did not end well for Peter. And so I think Mark left it out to protect his buddy. Now, there are a couple of other significant, not contradictory, not irreconcilable, but significant differences between these stories as told by Matthew and John and the one that we are about to look at uh, this morning, and, and so I'll highlight those differences as we come to them. But, but here's my question that I want to keep before you. Why is this one here? That is, why does, why does Mark record it the way that he records it? I could ask it this way. Why does Jesus walk on the water anyway? He didn't have to. Why? Our outline's going to go like this. We're going to see the background to the miracles in those first couple of verses. Then we're going to see the miracles themselves. And I say miracles because there are actually a number of them. And along the way, we'll see the purpose of these miracles. That is why Mark records it as he does. You see, I'm going to suggest that there are four significant things or, or events that happen in this story that support Mark's purpose. page turn there. Well, you understand that all of the things that Jesus has done to this point has wowed the disciples. They were really impressed with Jesus. I mean, who wouldn't be? I mean, they were impressed when he healed people, when he drove out demons, when he raised the dead, when he calmed storms, when he, when he fed 5,000 men, 15,000 people with the boy's lunch. <laughs> but that's it. They were impressed, but they were not yet convinced because Mark says their hearts, after that last one, well, they were hard. That's interesting. Their hearts were hard. That word is used a little bit earlier in, in the book of Mark to speak of outsiders, not insiders. I mean, are these guys, are these disciples, are they followers or not? I don't know. Are you? Are, are, are you convinced? We've been in Mark for some time now, and 
Jesus has been wowing us, and he's been doing all kinds of miracles and saying all kinds of incredible things. Are you convinced? Are you still sitting on the fence? You see, this particular miracle, Matthew tells us, sent the disciples over the edge. They finally get it. What do they get? We'll see it when we come to the end of our time together. But what that means is that this particular story is incredibly important for those of you sitting on the fence. Are you convinced? Let's begin by setting the stage for the story. The story, again, actually begins with that familiar story that we looked at last week. You remember uh, the only miracle to be recorded in all four Gospels, Jesus took five loaves and, and two fish and fed upwards of 15,000 people with it. I mean, this was great stuff. But, but why were those people there in the first place? Well, John's story says it this way. A, a large crowd followed him because, this is why they were there, they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. They were following him, you see, because of all of the neat tricks that he was doing. They weren't convinced, make no mistake about it. In fact, in John's gospel, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus begins to teach some very difficult things, and as a result, many of them left. They weren't convinced. At this point, Jesus and the disciples they're in the middle of nowhere, and all these people show up, and so Jesus does another trick, a miracle. He makes them sit down by fifties and hundreds and blesses some fish and bread, and he feeds them all. Not only that, they, 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 they took up 12 baskets of leftovers, one for each of the 12. Jesus really had their attention now. I mean, it's one thing to heal somebody, but hey, when you feed me, that's something different altogether. And so we read these words in John, again, John's account in John chapter 6, verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself to be alone. The crowds at lunch that day were going to forcefully make Jesus king. Why? (laughs) Because they had had a good lunch. I mean, this was better than Golden Corral, Fickle, easily satisfied, wrongly motivated bunch of people. Feed me more. That brings us to Mark's telling of the story. You see, it is why that Jesus made them get into the boat and go ahead of him while he dismissed the crowds. You see, the word made is a very strong word. He commanded them. He compelled them to get into the boat. Why? Well, there was lots of hoopla going on. No doubt the disciples were right in the middle of all of it. I mean, can you imagine? Finally, after almost two years of walking around, no place to lay our heads, living from hand to mouth, this is it, Jesus They're ready to make you king. You have them eating out of your hand, literally. Let's go. We'll march with these tens of thousands to Jerusalem. We'll pick up a few more thousand along the way. We'll get rid of Herod, then Rome. This is it, Jesus. It's time to claim your crown and build your kingdom. Get in the boat. You see, Jesus would not be made king forcefully for economic 
or political reasons. He would not be used for personal gain. There are lots of people, you see, who need to understand that today. His was not a kingdom of this world, at least not yet. To set up his kingdom and bypass the cross? Why, that's exactly what Satan had tempted him to do back in the wilderness. Remember, if you will just bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. No. That is not the way to set up his kingdom. You come into his kingdom through the cross, or you don't come at all. So he got rid of the disciples, sent them on ahead. After dismissing the crowds, Jesus went up to the mountain to pray by himself. Remember, he and his disciples had actually come to this desolate area to get away from the crowds. He was tired. I said that last week. Even Jesus needed a break, and even Jesus needed time to pray, commune with his Father. It's, it's interesting to note that, that Mark records Jesus praying three rather significant times. First, before choosing the twelve, last in, in Gethsemane, the night before the cross, and, and this particular time. Why this time? Because this attempt to make him king prematurely would, would derail his purpose for coming. And so Jesus prays, likely seeking his Father's continued will to, to be fulfilled. I, I commit myself again to the cross. I won't be made king, at least not yet. And, and, and then I'm also going to suggest that perhaps he's praying for his disciples, the ones who aren't yet convinced, because he knew the storm that was coming. That's the scene. It's evening. The crowds are gone. Jesus is up on the mountain praying, and the disciples were supposed to be making their way across the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee toward Bethsaida. It's not really a long journey, but they encounter this this storm. Now, this is not just any storm. And remember, many of these disciples were seasoned uh, sailors. This was a doozy of a storm. The entire trip should have lasted, it was just a few miles, should have lasted just a couple hours, but they were, they were driven by the wind toward the middle of the sea. There were many stadia from the shore, John tells us, about 25 or 30 stadia. That's three or four miles you see, they were apparently forced south, completely in the wrong direction. This boat was battered by the waves. Literally, that word it speaks of being tormented or harassed. The wind was against them. They were going into a headwind that was driving them again the wrong way. Mark tells us they were straining at the, at the oars. Basically, what you have is a bunch of seasoned sailors fighting for their lives. Not only that... They'd been doing it all night. You see, Jesus had sent them uh, away sometime in the evening while he goes up on the mountain to pray. When he finally shows up during the fourth watch of the night, by the way, that's the Roman uh, way of dividing the night into periods, and we remember that Mark is writing to Roman Christians. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 and 6 a.m., the point is, these poor disciples have been fighting the storm all night, up to six hours, and they were no closer to their destination than when they began. In fact, they were further away. This was an incredible trial, a raging storm. So let's stop there right now. Can I remind you that it was Jesus who sent them away in the boat? 
And I don't think it was like Jesus was up on the mountain praying, lost track of time, and thought, oh, no, what have I done? I forgot all about him. It's not like the father told him in the middle of his prayer, hey, by the way, son, your disciples are in big trouble. Jesus, I am suggesting, knew what he was doing. He is the one who sent them into the storm. Some speculate that's another reason he had to make them get into the boat. They could see the storm coming. The point, my point is that Jesus sent them into the storm, which leaves us one of three alternatives. Either Jesus didn't know what was about to happen, uh, unacceptable, or Jesus made a mistake, also unacceptable, or he sent them into the storm on purpose. That plays havoc with some theologies today. Perhaps plays havoc with the way that you think about God. Some think when you come to faith in Christ, it's prosperity for you. Health, wealth, prosperity. Your struggle and your trials go away. Has that been that way for you? You mean Jesus actually sent them into a trial? He intentionally placed them in harm's way? You bet. Which means when we face trials, it might not be that we're di- we've done something wrong. <laughs> this is going to come as a shock to some of you. It might not be that Satan is attacking us. You talk to some people and a flat tire is an arrow of the evil one. It might not be that we've done anything wrong. It might not be a satanic attack. It might not even be mere coincidence. It actually might be that God, the God of the universe wants to purify us, strengthen us, mold us, and teach us. I am suggesting that God sometimes brings storms into our lives to mature us and teach us something about himself. That's what I believe that he does here. Jesus could have prevented the storm. He, 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 he could have come to them much sooner He didn't have to wait till the wee hours of the morning if he wanted to. He could have gone with them. He had done that before. Peace, be still, put a muzzle on it, remember? But he allowed them rather, listen, he allowed them to reach the extremity of their need before he intervened. He does that sometimes. But we can be sure that he knows where we are. We can be sure he knows what's going on. He knows what we need, and he knows what he's doing. He has never lost you for a moment. Psalm 139, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me. Do you believe that? That brings us to the miracles in verses 48 and following. There are actually four miracles here. Mark records two of them. Matthew records another and John the fourth. Let's look at them, Western mindset, one at a time. First, Jesus came walking to them on the water. On the water. Now, I know that's troubling to some people, and liberal commentators want to dismiss it. They suggest, no, 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 no. Jesus was walking on the shore. 
The disciples were just confused. They just thought he was walking on the water. Or they suggest he was walking on a sandbar. Problem is, that's not what the text says. You put it all together, we find that the disciples are a long distance from the shore, three or four miles, middle of the night. You can't see someone that far away. And the language is such that Jesus came walking on the water, which I am telling you is the first significant thing that happens that fulfills Mark's purpose. Who walks on water? Job 9 says, Who alone stretches out the heavens and treads upon the waves of the sea? God does. Purpose. Get the picture in your mind. I don't think the the sea was calm when Jesus was walking on it. it. It says the wind didn't die down until he got into the boat. Waves are crashing all around, sea spray everywhere. The wind is howling. The night is dark. No moonlight, no starlight because of the clouds. Perhaps there's an occasional flash of lightning and, and a clap of thunder. And, and they look out from the, the boat and they see this figure walking toward them. Their response, terror, you would have too. It must be a ghost. The word is phantasma, from which we get our word phantom. They they, they cry out. The word is scream. Grown men crying out like, I would say little girls, but I don't want to offend anybody. I'll say little children. Who wouldn't? You would too. It's the middle of the night, and someone's taking a stroll in the middle of the sea. Their hopelessness turned to horror. They're terrified. And so Jesus calls out to them, take courage, literally cheer up. Are you kidding me? We're fighting for our lives all night long. So he says, do not be afraid. Easy for you to say. And sandwiched in between those two encouragements is the reason that they can cheer up, the reason that they need not fear. It is I. Stop right there. This is the second significant thing that supports Mark's purpose. The Greek words are ego eimi, literally translated I am. The same words used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 3, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses said to him, what's your name? And and God responded, my name is Ego and me, I am. I am that I am. Not convinced? Well, in John chapter 8, Jesus is having a confrontation with some Pharisees at some point, and at some point, he claims to be uh, to exist before Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. Don't you mean before Abraham was, I was? No, I am. Ego, me. In the very next verse, we read that the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Why? Poor grammar? No. They, they, they knew that he was claiming to be the I am of the burning bush. They knew that he was claiming to be God, and it irritated him, them, and they were going to stone him for blasphemy, and Jesus claims the same thing here. I am. Although I doubt the disciples understood it at the time, Mark intends us to understand the reason they could cheer up, the reason they need not fear in the midst of the storm is because the God of the universe was there. I Am. Does anybody need to hear that this morning? 
I don't know what storms you may be facing, but I want to remind you that the great I am promised to never leave you nor forsake you. He is present. He knows what you need. He knows where you are. He has not lost you for a moment. Remember, I I said that he was praying on the mountaintop, and I I suggested that he was praying for his disciples. It doesn't say that. I'm suggesting that he, he was. Because you see, in Romans chapter 8, we we read that he's seated at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for you, this great I am. Not only that, verse 48 is is the third significant thing, event, that happens that supports Mark's purpose. There's a rather troubling description given. Mark says that when Jesus came walking on the water, he intended to pass by them. What? They've been struggling all night, and he's just going to walk by me. What is this, a race? Race you to the shore, guys. Not, not, Not exactly. The word for pass by is a technical term in the Old Testament, which speaks of what is called in theological terms a theophany, an appearance of God. Let me give you a couple. God put Moses in the cleft of the rock so Moses could see when God passed by. Same words. God told Elijah to stand on the mountain for the Lord was about to pass by. Same words. The point is Jesus was doing something very significant with this walk on the sea. He was proving that he was God, and they got it. We'll see that in a minute. Understand this. Jesus did not walk on water to teach the disciples how to do it, okay? This is not something you should try at home. And, and, and he didn't have to walk on water to save them. He could have done it from the shore. He could have done it from the mountaintop. He could have even prevented the storm. But he chose to show up in the midst of the storm, in the nick of time, listen to me this morning, to demonstrate his willingness to do whatever is necessary to save his children, to give them an unforgettable reminder of the power and extent of divine grace. He passed by. which means you will never find yourself in a place where Jesus cannot find you. You'll never be in a storm so severe he cannot protect protect you. The storm is never so severe, the night never so black, the boat never so frail, that we have to be fearful or discouraged that we are beyond his notice. So, first miracle. The rest don't take this long. Jesus walked on water. Second miracle is actually found not in our text, but in Matthew's story. Most of us are familiar with uh, the event. We all know that Pete, uh, about Peter's successful and unsuccessful attempt to walk on water. Only Matthew records it. Mark, John, leave it out. When Jesus calls out to the disciples, it is I, I am, Peter responds, if it is you, command me to come to you. And Jesus responds with a single word command, Come. Now, again, Jesus' point here was not to teach Peter how to walk on water. If you just have enough faith, you don't need boats. Not not the point. Later in John chapter 21, when Jesus appears to the disciples this time on the shore after the resurrection, the disciples are out on the same Sea of Galilee fishing all night. Jesus calls to them from the shore. Peter realizes it's Jesus, tears off his coats, throws himself over, uh, overboard, and swims ashore. What? Didn't he learn anything about water walking? Not the point. The point was, Peter wanted to be with Jesus. Lord, 
If it is you in the midst of this storm of incredible proportions, I want to be where you are. Command me to come. And so Jesus did. Peter walked on water. We're not sure how far, but apparently close enough that when he started to sink, Jesus simply reached out his hand and grabbed him. Then, presumably, they both walked on the water back to the boat. You see, when Peter got out there, for just a moment, he took his eyes off Jesus, and he began to look around. And he saw the winds and the waves, the one who still know his name. Storm's still there, you see, and he became frightened, and he began to sink. And, and, and I think many times we do the same thing. We, we face storms in our lives, significant storms of huge proportions. We look to Jesus. Everything's okay. The storm's still there. Don't miss that. The storm's still there, but he helps us through. But how often do we take our eyes off Christ and begin to look around at our circumstances and begin to doubt? We look at our financial, relational, academic, vocational, familial struggles, and we doubt. And we can begin to sink in a sea of despair. And Jesus' word to you this morning is this. Focus on me. I will see you through. I won't necessarily cease the raging of the storm, but I will see you through it. Jesus gave Peter a mild rebuke. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He took his eyes off Jesus, began to sink, and Jesus said, you almost made it. A few more steps, you would have been here. Don't doubt trust. Don't, don't doubt, trust. Now think about Peter with me for just a moment. Let me just throw this in as just a little aside. Was Peter a failure? Maybe. Maybe. But there were 11 bigger failures in the boat, the ones who never got out. Peter may have exercised little faith. They exercised none. And I am confident that Peter took this event with him to the grave. He walked on water. He's the only person on the planet besides Jesus, under the power of Jesus to walk on water. Peter is an encouragement to us to exercise faith and walk with Jesus in the midst of great storms. Third and fourth miracles, very quickly. Third is found in verse 51. And it's the fourth significant thing in the story that serves Mark's purpose. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped. Storm died, just like before. Who controls the winds and the waves? The winds and the waves still know his name. God. And as an encouragement to us, storms don't last forever. They eventually go away when he deems it necessary. Brings us quickly to the fourth rather obscure miracle found in John chapter 6, verse 21. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, <laughs> this phantasma, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. <laughs> Did you see that? He gets into the boat, the storm stops, and beam me up, Scotty, they are on the shore. <laughs> They'd rode long enough, you see. At this point, Mark tells us the disciples were utterly astonished, for... They had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. Their heart was hardened. 
You see, Mark is developing another theme in his book, namely the disciples were very slow to understand. (laughs) They had seen Jesus do a lot. Maybe just like you. They They had most recently seen Jesus take five loaves and two fish and feed a multitude of people. That should have been convincing. That should have been enough. It wasn't. They needed more because their hearts were hard. It's quite the indictment. I wonder how much Jesus must do for us before we really learn to trust him. Mark's point, I think, is to encourage us. Trust. Oh, you with little faith. Trust. Sure, you will face storms in this life, but trust because he's altogether trustworthy. But Matthew records a further response. You see, as I suggested earlier, till this point, the, the disciples had only been amazed by Jesus. And they were asking some right questions. What kind of man is this? Remember the last story? What kind of man is this? But they had yet to come up with the right answer. Even after he'd fed 15,000 people with a boy's lunch, they were impressed, but hadn't been convinced yet. They didn't get it. Which is exactly why we have this story of Jesus walking on the water. Okay, fine, Jesus says. Let's throw them in the midst of another storm where they must fight for their lives all night. And then I'll take a little stroll in the middle of the night on top of the water. Let's see if they can figure it out then. Do they? Matthew records when Jesus got into the boat after being transported immediately to the shore. They exclaimed, you are certainly God's son. They finally... They, they finally get it. This is the first time in the gospel narratives the disciples declare it, that this is the message. Listen to me. This is the message that Jesus wants you to hear today. He is the Son of God. In fact, He is God Himself. He is the great I Am of the burning bush. He wants to show Himself mighty to you in your presence, in the storms of this life, in the challenges that you face. He wants to pass by you and for you to marvel. He wants to say to you, cheer up. Don't be afraid. I am that I am is here. As we close this morning, I simply want to ask you, do you know who Jesus is? Yes, 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 yes. I I know that many of you know him as your Savior, but do you know him as the one who walks with you in the midst of storms? Do you trust him really? What is it that keeps you awake at night? Maybe, just maybe, you're focused on the elements, the circumstances. Maybe, just maybe, you, are, you have been focused on the circumstances of your storm long enough. Maybe it is time to focus on the God of the storm who walks with you. Maybe it's time you trust him. Let's stand for prayer.